Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Peter 2, 10b through 22. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of its instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice, entice by essential passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is the word of the Lord. What a great text when you've lost an hour, right? <laughs> We've got our work cut out for us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you. Indeed, your faithfulness is great and your grace is truly amazing. Fathers, we come to a very difficult text in many ways as Peter is laying out the false teachers that are in their camp. We, Lord, we just ask that you would guide us as we go through the text. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to, to come this morning and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to Second Peter. That is where we are. If you're just joining us, we're journeying through this epistle nestled in the latter part of the New Testament. We looked at First Peter. First Peter, uh, one of the things that we saw in this epistle of grace was that there are ridicule, there's persecution from the outside. Second Peter is a, an epistle on knowledge, knowing Christ is being stressed. Why? Because now the persecution is false teachers that have crept now into the camp, and that's where we are in chapter 2. And so you would turn to chapter 2. We're going to start in the latter part of verse 10. As you do, it was about 10 years ago on June the 23rd that a 34-year-old tightrope walker by the Nick Valandas crossed the first man to cross the Grand Canyon. He, he literally went a quarter of a mile on a two-inch rope. No thank you, right? Uh, I'll 
lose an hour any day of the week than to do that. 1,500 feet drop. He did it in 23 minutes. I thought a lot about that as they were commemorating that this recently. We as a church, we walk a tightrope, don't we? We want to be strong in our theology while at the same time erring on the side of grace and love. It's important because if you lean too far on one side, you're you're, you know, you're known for what you're against, not what you're for. You're the fighting fundy. If you're on the other side of this tightrope and you start to lean the other way, you become anything goes kind of approach. There is a balance, and it's a difficult task. It's going to take longer than 23 minutes, and I would argue the danger far outweighs falling into a cliff 1,500 foot to your death. It's because this has eternal consequences. Peter understands the tightrope that the church walks. And this church is in grave danger. They don't have the 43-pound uh, weight or the balancing pole as they, they juggle this. And he's saying, listen, you need to be on guard. You, you, you need to watch the doctrinal deviance that has crept in. And these, these false teachers are peddling their wares be, be on guard. And we saw that the first part of two, and now he takes kind of out the paddle, and he is going to spank those false teachers. And he's going to do it in front of the church because it's a reminder to all of us that we need to latch on to orthodoxy. We need to be careful. And starting in the latter part of verse 10, he says, brazen and insolent. Why? Because he's just talked about them, these, these false teachers, and he said, they poo-pooed judgment, anything future. And remember, in our study last week, Peter looks to uh, the generation, well, he looks to the angels, the fallen angels. He looks to the generation of Noah. He looks at the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he said, they receive their judgment, and you will as well, so take heed. And so it's natural to call them brazen and insolent. The terms speak of recklessness, and of arrogance, being obstinate, no matter the cost that might be involved. Again, for them, that is the false teachers. This whole idea of a judgment is a fairy tale. Oh, that's nice. You can't really believe that. We need to take, seize life and enjoy it. I'm, I'm always amazed by those who dismiss any type of eternity or future judgment as if it was a story invented by religion to scare people into obedience. Forget that we have a holy, sovereign God that has sacrificed his own son to, to ensure that sin could be dealt with in the heart of humanity. Uh, to me, to deny all that is truly reckless, and that's where Peter is saying. It's kind of like saying, I, I don't believe the IRS exists, so I'm not going to pay any taxes. Well, you laugh, but far worse is this, right? You can go to jail for not paying taxes. This you'll spend a Christless eternity if you poo-poo this. And that's what Peter is saying. Be careful. And notice what he says about them. They are not afraid. They do not tremble 
to insult the glorious ones. Now, the title here is, that phrase is difficult. Who are the glorious ones? I, I think it's clear. It's not human beings. It's angels. And then the question is, is he talking about good angels or is he talking about bad angels? And verse 11 seems to indicate they are bad angels because it says, even angels who are much more powerful do not bring a slander judgment against them. It, it's a little difficult here on what Peter is stating but what is clear is there is no fear with these false teachers. They, they believe they're above the law. And that is the danger here. They're playing God. Now the question is, why don't they fear demonic powers? Why is that way they're not as scared? Some have argued, well, they don't believe in the existence of angels. That's possible. Probably more likely, they don't believe that their lives could be taken over or empowered by demonic forces. And as he, Peter states in verse 11, careful because even the good angels do not pronounce judgment. Oh, they'll be with Christ when he returns at the second coming, 2 Thessalonians 1. But it's the Lord whom the angels allow to do the, the judgment. And that's the problem. The, re, these false teachers are trying to take over with what God is doing it's a reminder, isn't it? Just a side note, God has established authority on this earth. There are governments he set in place. There's structure within the home. There's structure within the church. And those angels, the good angels, know there is design. There is a hierarchy here. And even though they are more powerful, they're not about to do this before the Lord. And so the false teachers were seen as brazen and insolent. And this is where it gets good. He gets to verse 12. He says, these men are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed. There's a sense of humor here, so don't miss this as we go through this section. Peter is equating these false teachers to, to beasts, to animals. And he says, number one, they're without reason. They're irrational. My parents purchased years ago, a German shepherd part chow. Her name was Nikita. And I can remember the first time I came home to visit, I was away at college. And so the first time I came home to visit, my mom was out in the backyard of the garden. The doggie was out with her. And I came out the patio door. And if I thought that dog was going to tear me from limb to limb. I was like, Bruh. why? Instinct, instinct was to protect my mom. There was no reasoning here. I'm, that's my mommy. Didn't matter to Nikita. Uh, she didn't know me, and she was scared. And, and that's what we see here is these false teachers, they're acting, they don't understand. They're like these wild beasts. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, he warned us not to waste precious things on unappreciated brute beast. They act an instinct. Secondly, he says here, notice the text, they can, they're to be caught and destroyed. The idea here is they're to be hunted and then slaughtered. Like venison, right? This, this is meat here. And, and, and of course, the implication for the false teachers is what? They await eternal destruction, a term he will use five times just in this chapter. And so you see in this section, we have these false teachers. And now observe a couple things here that Peter's talking about. Number one, notice what he says. They... It says, these men, like irrational they, animals, do not understand whom they're insulting. First of all, they have no idea what they're doing. And you say, well, then that should excuse them. 
No. As we're going to see, they still will be held accountable. It's kind of like the loud mouth who talks in, the, in your office or at school. They have no idea, right? They just kind of pontificate. You tune those people out. Uh, should hear as well. One commentator states of the false teachers, these people speak great bombastic nonsense. But in the end, they are no more well-informed than the beasts, and hence the proper objects of retribution. Another implication from this text is that the heretics' ignorance, again, as I stated, does not excuse them. Ignorance, as we're going to see in the Peter's letters, and I would argue throughout the New Testament, ignorance is a willful rejection of God. That's how it's depicted. That's why this letter is going to highlight you need to know these things because to be ignorant is a refusal to know the truth. The third observation is that their destruction will be payback. It is what they deserve. Notice it says, it, consequently, in their destruction, they will be destroyed. It's irony. They reap destruction in the church, and they're going to, well, they sow it, and they're going to reap it. It's going to be the consequence of it. Well, this kind of piggybacks, it's the bridge from what he has just talked about earlier in chapter 2, and now it, it, he takes and he just kind of nails them on several things. He says in verse 13, the latter part, here he says, by considering it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. So he, now he's going to give us these characteristics, and the first thing he says is they're hedonistic. They're completely shameless. They enjoy doing these things. In fact, notice what the text says, they do it in daylight. Now, in the ancient world, and somewhat today, in the ancient world, that was very taboo. In fact, there's ancient writings that talk about you don't drink to start your morning. That, that alcohol, that, that, to do things in public was shameful, even in a world that was hedonistic. And, and what we're highlighting here, what Peter's highlighting is, hey, what they, what is once thought to be a vice is now considered a virtue. Right? And they're flaunting it in front of the less fortunate, in front of the church. You say, boy, is that true? Well, 1 Corinthians 5, remember the text? Uh, Paul says to the church at Corinth, moreover, there's fornication reported among you that's not even among the heathens. He goes on to say that there's a man in your church that's having sexual relations with the stepmom. And then he says in verse 2, and you're proud of it? Wow, you, you see how far the church has come. And sadly, you could argue that's the case today. I mean, the day in which we live, what was once shame is now pride. What was once kept in secret is now given a parade. And those who once struggled with their vice are now struggling with those who won't accept their vice. That's the world we live in. And that's what the false teachers were doing. They were taking what was wrong and turning it upside down. By the way, that's Satan's tactics all the way from Genesis, isn't it? You take what God has created and, and turn it upside down to, to strip the glory that is due to the Lord. And so we see, first of all, they're hedonistic. They delight in doing this. And notice what else he says. These men, he says, they suffer accordingly. It says these, these folks, in, the, in verse 13, they are stained and they are blemished. They're spotted. 
it's unlike the saints who are called to be pure. Remember Ephesians 5, by the word, so that he may present the church to himself as glorious, not having a stain or wrinkle or any blemish. For a Jewish audience, this is key. Because remember the sacrifices? You couldn't have a blemish. You couldn't have a spot. And, and of course, the text here is not that the, the false teachers are struggling with acne. That's not what we're dealing with, right? We're, we're talking about the heart, right? That which defiles. And what are we as believers supposed to do in Romans 12? Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice. It's to be pure. Because in a Jewish culture, if Bobo has a spot, Bobo cannot be sacrificed. You gotta find someone else. In fact, it was true for priests. There's that whole scene in the Intertestament period with Herod the Great when he took the ear of the high priest and, and cut it. Now he's deformed, he can't be the high priest. So purity was vital and to this depiction is clear, these, these brutes, these, these hedonistic false teachers, he says, they're spotted. In fact, he goes on to say they're, they're polluted, which is this idea that he says, in fact, notice what he says here, indulging their deceitful pleasures when they feast together with you. Some see this as the, the uh, communion table. <laughs> we know in 1 Corinthians 7, the warning, or 11, excuse me, Paul gives a warning to the church. When you come to take communion, you don't drink of this unworthily or the judgment falls on you. And why would he have to say that? The implication is it's going on in the early church, and that was the case here, where it appears that they've, they've brought their hedonistic lifestyle, their pollution, even to the communion table. I wrote, they believe that the word of God needs to be adjusted to accommodate their lives. Instead, our lives should be adjusted to accommodate the word of God. If someone is doctrinally unsound, they should not be in leadership in the church. <laughs> They're dangerous, and that's what Peter is saying. Take heed. False teaching throughout Scripture is accompanied with immorality, and such is the case here. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 14. Their eyes are full of adultery, never stopping to, never stopping to sin. In other words, they're addicted to sex. They, they look at a man or a woman and are committing adultery. Remember Christ's words back in Matthew 5, I say to whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery. And he said that's the problem with these false teachers. It's being driven by alternative motive. If sin gets its claws in you, look out. It won't be long until the activity becomes a habit. A habit that becomes all-encompassing and creates a serious love-hate relationship within your soul. They're suffering from compulsive sexual behavior <laughs> where the drive for relationship is dictating all that they do. And that addiction naturally leads to becoming a predator. And you see that, because look what it says. They never stop sinning. They entice unstable people. The term there in the Greek is an idea of fishing or hunting. They've laid the bait. 
And you say, well, what's the bait? I think the context is clear. It, it, it's, you've got liberty in Christ. You can do whatever you want. You've been saved. There's freedom. And remember, there's no judgment. So this is great. Come participate. Again, we, we've talked about this. Their morality has shaped their theology, and it's dictating how they interpret Scripture or, or what they omit. Forsyth stated, the purpose of life is not to find your freedom, but to find your master. Sadly, these false teachers who claim to be free are actually enslaved to the very thing they thirst. Some have argued that hell will be your desires gone haywire with no fulfillment. <laughs> um, this, is, this is a what they think they have all together, they don't, because why? They are irrational beasts. And consequently, they train, notice the verse 14, they train their hearts for greed. This is a loaded term. The term there, training, is what was used of the gymnasiums in the ancient world. It was not just the place for physical training. It was the place for fellowship. It was the place for mental intellectual equipment, as well as, of course, physical endurance, etc. In other words, they have a membership at the local apostate gym. <laughs> They've been working out. They've been nurturing this. In other words, they didn't just fall into this. No, 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 no. They're very well trained. And this is the danger... It is the danger when we do not filter what we're hearing from a pulpit or from a, a radio or a TV preacher or from those of you in college or at a Christian school. We're to be what we call good Bereans. We're to search the, the text because I will tell you, these false teachers are alive and well in the church today, big C, and they know how to navigate well. They do. They, they've been well trained. We talked about that last week. A leading New Testament scholar who's, who's written numerous works who went to a conservative Bible college in the United States is doing everything he can to undermine the text. It's crazy. And he's not the only one. My advisor back in Aberdeen was agnostic at best but one of the finest New Testament scholars, and she knew exactly how to navigate through all of this. They are well-equipped. They've trained themselves. Why? Here is clear. Ultimately, it's to satisfy themselves. It's how they, they get ahead. It's how they suppress. It's well done. And notice it says, these cursed children. In other words, they are already under God's judgment. How ironic they deny it, but actually they're under it. Matthew 16, for what does it benefit a person if he gains the whole world, but forfeits his life? You can have the televangelist that's got the big house and you know, prosperity gospel, et cetera, et cetera. There's a day coming. There, there's a day, they're, they're cursed because you, you've meddled with God's message and you've tampered with the church. Remember the false teachers that Paul encountered? What did he say to do to them? Turn them over to Satan. Because the destruction, the cancer that they present is dangerous. And that's what Peter is saying to the church here. Be careful. And then notice what he says. They forsake the right path. 
the way. It's what biblical discipleship is doing. It's, it's calling us to follow after the Lord. Yet, notice their path. They've gone astray, and they follow the way of Balaam, the son of Basor, which in the Old Testament, it's Beor. Here, it's playing off the word flesh. And you go, who is Balaam? I don't remember that story. Well, let me fill you in because it's a great one. It's one of my favorites in the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> there's just such great humor in it. If you remember, Balaam was a prophet. And he was called to curse the Israelites. But he knew, we're going to get to it in a minute, eventually couldn't do that. So what did he do? He encouraged them, the Israelites, to marry the local yokels and it brought corruption into the camp. So he figured it out. But Balaam became known as a person who was driven by greed. That's why he was wanting to do it in the first place, provoking the Israelites to sin when they married eventually the Moabite women. Jewish, later Jewish writings referred to Balaam, listen to how they referred to him, an evil eye, a proud soul, and a haughty spirit. And Peter says, these false teachers are Balaam's offspring. Not literally, but metaphorically. They act like Balaam. And if you remember, when Balaam was trying to curse the Israelites, he gets scolded by none other than Mr. Ed, a donkey, right? Or Shrek, it's Eddie Murphy. I don't know. But this donkey speaks. Numbers 22 says, Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've beaten me? Because every time the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, he turns, right? And Balaam keeps beating the donkey. And it says, why do you keep doing this? And Balaam says to the donkey, listen to what he says. You have made me look stupid. <laughs> really? I think you've accomplished that very well. I wish you were, a, I had a sword in my hand. I would kill you right now. Balaam should have known the will of God. You don't curse God's people. Yet, ironically, it took the speech of a donkey to make him aware. And, of course, it begs the question, who really is the beast? Balaam's ass or Balaam, right? Who's, who's the one that's the beast here? And it fits the context. Because you started off this section with, you are like beasts, you false teachers. And later, he's going to refer to them as dogs. And that's not like your little bobos. They didn't have labradoodles back then, right? So it's not your cute little puppies. You're like a dog or a pig. You're like a beast in the midst of this. And so the text is clear. It goes back to you're behaving like irrational beings. And notice the text even spells this out. You were rebuked. He was rebuked for his own transgression. A dumb donkey, one who should not be speaking, speaks with a human voice and restrains the prophet's madness. That's the false teachers. He's look out. Now he's not done. He's given these characteristics and then he says these men, and then he gives us these three metaphors, are waterless springs. In other words, they look like they produce something, but they don't. They're mists. <laughs> They're fogs on the lagoon, right? They, they produce foreboding darkness driven by a storm. You think something's going to happen, but nothing does. And then he says, and whom the utter depths of darkness have been reserved. They're dwellers in a vast sea of darkness. Do you notice the contrast of those three with Christ? Think about this for a minute. 
they're a spring that offers no water. What does Jesus say? I am the living water. Come to me, you who are thirsty. They're the mist that produce foreboding darkness. And Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which these false teachers are not going to offer you. And they are dwellers of darkness. And what does Christ say in John 8 and John 9? I am the light of the world. What a contrast to what they're offering versus what Christ has offered. And then he says in 18 and 19, Peter does, by far speaking high-sounding but empty words, they're able to entice with fleshly desires. He identifies three ways that they are seducing people. One, they are speaking eloquently. Literally, it's overblown words of vanity is how you could render it. <laughs> Even Balaam's donkey spoke better than them, right? At least he spoke truth. I, 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 a few months ago, I was hearing some people, I don't know if I was getting my hair cut, I don't remember. I was hearing these people talk, and they were talking about a, a, a TV evangelist that um, I'm not sure where the gospel is in his rhetoric, and they were talking about how wonderful he is. And I just wanted to say, have you really listened to what he says and doesn't say? careful. The preacher who tells his listeners how good they are and how much God needs them is to be avoided. While God loves us, he does not need us. hate to tell you, but he did send his son to die for our sins because we weren't good. And, and these false teachers know exactly how to tickle the ears and notice it says they do that by appealing to human desires. And it's another fishing term. <laughs> As one commentator notes concerning the practice of the false teachers, grandiose sophistry is the hook. Filthy lust is the bait. <laughs> and so we see that they are polluted. And then finally we're told in the text they promise freedom. You don't need these moral constraints. Christianity is not a, uh, you got it all wrong. This is so we can live like we want. And how ironic, because they're enslaved to sin and slaves don't offer freedom. <laughs> it's the master who offers freedom. So you get to verse 20, and he says, it better if they had escaped, for if after they've escaped these filthy things of the world through the rich knowledge of our Lord and Savior, they again get entangled to them their last state has become worse for them than the first. It'd been better if they never had known the way, here it is, of righteousness. That's what was described of Noah and of Lot, but certainly not Balaam. What we see here is these false teachers have fallen to apostasy. That is, they have fallen away from what they had claimed to be true. And I would argue it demonstrates they never belonged to the Lord. Hebrews 3 says, you will hold fast to these things if in fact you're the house of God. It's not what will be true but what is already true. In 1 John 2, they went out from us, speaking of false teachers, but they did not really belong to us because if they had belonged to us they would have remained with us and they would have went out to demonstrate that all of them do not belong. And so he's saying, listen, this is <clears throat> they claim these things and they've fallen away and of course that leaves us with two major questions. The first is why was their last state worse than the first? Right? And that's, the, that's a question you needed to ask. And I think Schreiner is right in his commentary. It was worse because those who had experienced the Christian faith 
and then rejected it were unlikely to return to it again. In other words, there's greater accountability. And that fits with the second question is, why is it better that they never knew the truth? Well, I'll give you three reasons. The, the uninformed individual can be taught. They've been taught. Secondly, those who do not know possess far less influence than the learned. These are leaders, supposedly, in the church. And third, those who are uninformed receive less punishment than those who've committed apostasy. There's greater accountability here. It's dangerous. And I, I, I believe this is what Peter's talking about here. I personally know an individual who was active in a Christian organization at his Ivy League school went on for terminal degree in biblical studies, and now has abandoned the faith. He, he, he sees the whole thing as nice, but it certainly is not factual. He's fallen the way of what we see here. It would have been better if you hadn't even known, because now the accountability is even greater, and the damage that you leave is great. Now, you may be sitting here this morning wondering if perhaps, like the false teachers, you, you've gone too far. I know, I've talked to a couple of you who are wrestling with, you know, I, I, I made a profession in Christ, but I, I'm concerned, my, my heart seems to be saying something else. I wanna give you just a few things. This is a side note, it's free today. It's that extra hour you had to, uh, you know, you're here, so let's make it worth our time, right? I, I would argue it's a good sign that you're wrestling with it because number one, it tells me the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. But I think you need to be, we need to be reminded that we as believers of 1 John 3, it's a great text, you may want to write it down. 1 John 3, 20, if our conscience condemns us, that God is greater than our conscience and he knows all things. There is no evidence that we can give against ourselves that over, can overturn the work of God's Son to take away the sins of those who trust Him. Secondly, the accusations of the heart are not greater than the intercession of Jesus. Remember, we have an advocate, a great high priest, who is interceding on our behalf. He's far stronger than we. He's not going to second guess what he, whom He has called before the foundation of the world. And third, we have a heavenly father who knows the plans he has made for us now and a decade from now. Our knowledge is limitless, or it's limited. We cannot possibly know enough about ourselves to disqualify ourselves from his mercy. So what am I saying? If you're struggling in your walk with the Lord and wanting to know, cling to the profession you have made. Rest in his forgiveness because he says, as far as the east is from the west, he forgives. Rest in his love. Ian Turner, in an article in this month of the Banner of Truth magazine, makes this statement, and it's dynamite. He says, may God teach us that whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Do not listen to the feeble verdict of your heart, but to the infallible verdict of God's word. Move forward by looking Godward. Isn't that great? And so we hear this with the false teachers and, and I, I know some folks have been struggling in our midst and I wanted to just highlight that. Well, let's go back to the false teachers because you have this 
rather graphic scene in verse 22. This is where the teens really sit up. They love this, right? You got the dogs and the pigs. And he quotes, well, both creatures, remember, under the Old Testament law, are considered unclean. And think about dogs. It was used as an insult in 1 Samuel. Dogs were a real problem in the ancient world. These were wild dogs. Again, this is not Bobo that you have in the home. And in fact, Proverbs 26 says, dogs return to its own vomit as a fool who reverts to his folly. And of course, it's being quoted here. Pigs also are known for returning to their filth. In fact, one ancient writer, I love this, he says, if you're having trouble, go and talk to a pig that he may wallow no more in mud, or that you may no, wallow no more in mud. The idea is they love to go back to the mud, and, and God designed them that way. That's how they regulate their temperature and protect their skin from sunburn. While a pig may never suffer from skin cancer, they are dirty, and that's the idea. In fact, their manure smells worse than most animals, according to Wikipedia. And it knows everything, right? Corruption here, though, what, don't miss this, it's not that the false teachers are coming to, to church with dirty clothes. No, 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 no. He's talking about the heart, the, and, and that's the idea here, the uncleanliness of the spots and the blemishes of the heart. Both animals here are seen in disgusting ways. And that repulsive nature is now attributed to the false teachers and their behavior. A dog is a dog, and a pig is a pig. Hmm. I thought it was interesting, reflecting on this text. We've been labeled the sheep of God's pasture, haven't we? And sheep are known for being gentle animals who are easy to handle. We need to be subservient to the shepherd. And the danger is when you have sheep that are starting to function like pigs or as dogs. Look out, right? Be careful. Well, anyway, you say, well, thanks, Hophidus. Love this layout of the false teachers, but how do we apply this? Let me give you three things that are in your notes. We need to guard our hearts so that the pleasures of the world do not become our dominating goal. We need to guard our hearts. You look at these false teachers, you say, how do I apply this? And, <clears throat> you know, certainly the obvious is we need to be well-established in the faith. That's what Peter highlighted in chapter 1. We need to know the Word. We need to be in fellowship with the saints. But a, a less obvious one, but I think just as important, is learning contentment. How do we guard our heart? By being content. Philippians 4, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Paul says, but I've learned to be content in any circumstance. Contentment is finding joy, satisfaction, and purpose, catch this, in Christ. Not in possessions or positions of power. How do we know if we're content in Christ? Well, let me just give you four questions. Who's your boss? You say, who's your daddy? But who's your boss? Do we own stuff or does stuff own us? Are, are we grateful? I mean, gratitude is the handmaiden of contentment. Are we thankful to what God has done? It's part of this guarding our hearts and, and looking to him. The false teachers certainly aren't grateful. And they want more stuff. It comes in a variety of ways. But where do we find our joy? In the next purchase? Cha-ching, right? The, the latest fad? Or is it in Christ? 
Here's another question. What consumes our thoughts, our time, and our monies? When you're laying in bed at night, what is it you're contemplating, you're thinking about? Or if you wake up early, the alarm goes off, and you, that, I, what happened to that hour? And you're laying there in bed, hitting the snooze 5,000 times. You, you, what are you reflecting on as you lay there? Our hearts need to be guarded. And that's what Peter is saying to the church. Take heed, because the false teachers are there then, they're here now, and we as the church need to be careful in guarding our hearts. Secondly, we need to love and train the saints. There are those that are new believers, and Paul talks about these infants in the faith. There's a time when they, they need to be nourished, they need to be equipped, they need to be trained. That's part of what we call discipleship. It's the process of a follower of Jesus coming alongside an individual to assist him or her in becoming like Jesus. It's a process that requires relationship, which is time, the word of God, training, obedience. I love Paul's words to the church at Ephesus, at least to the leaders in Acts 20. He says, you know, I did not hold back from proclaiming to you anything that would be helpful in teaching you. I gave you the whole purpose of God. Paul dedicated 18 months at Ephesus time, energy, resources, and he, he poured his life in so that this church would be well shored up, so that they wouldn't fall victim to pray to false teaching. And by the way, when you get to the book of Revelation, remember the, the seven letters, what does Christ say? What is his commendation, his well done, of the church at Ephesus? They know their doctrine. Thanks to people like Paul who poured into the life of the believers. Now, they have some other issues. Well, we won't go there. But effective discipleship, it does require time and energy. But we need to be pouring in the lives of the saints. And then finally, we, may must, we must be careful not to embrace a Christian leader just because of the appearance or slickness of the presentation. We need to be thinking saints. I gave four practical applications to that. Number one, you need to be praying for our leaders in the churches at large. Satan would love to shipwreck Christian leaders. If he can't have them embrace false doctrine, he may slip them up other ways. So be praying for your Christian leaders. It's a danger when individuals start believing their own press. Secondly, we must be careful not placing a leader on a high pedestal. I mean, I know we all have our favorites. There's this, you know, there's a particular radio minister I just love hearing to preach and Sinclair Ferguson. I mean, there's all these names we could throw out of people we just, we just love, you know, Chuck Swindoll, you know, Harsley Sproul. You fill the names in. Careful, they are sinners saved by grace. And a minister of the gospel or the teacher of scripture should be pointing you to Christ, not to himself. So take, just step back a second and, and and remember, this is just an instrument God is using for you to glorify him. We need to be constantly searching the scriptures. That's taking time and effort so that we're thinking for ourselves. If you hear something that's new, careful. There's no new God. There's no new Savior. There's no new atonement. <laughs> In fact, uh, I think it was Spurgeon who said, the old gospel is the only gospel. Uh, there is... Tradition, there's a the reason for it. And so when you hear something that's new, new or novel, 
do your homework first. Don't just embrace it. Be careful. And finally, we need to avoid tolerance of any false teaching. And this is where it gets more difficult in a world today where we're told to tolerate, to be unified. But Scripture's clear, it's sin. Talked about the church at Ephesus. There's two other churches, Pergamum and Thyatira. They're both condemned. Why? Because the people of those churches embraced false teaching or tolerated it. And what does Christ say to those two churches, Pergamum and Thyatira? He says, repent and do not associate with these people. One writer states, to seek unity with false prophets without challenging their errors leaves one's beliefs open to questions. Those who defend heretics, even if they do not believe in their teachings, are guilty of lending credibility to their heresies and will be held accountable to God for the souls that are destroyed as a result. Remember, the false teachers, later Paul talks about, you're undermining the faith of some, the woes who are not well established. That's dangerous stuff. To know the truth, we have to defend it within the church and outside the church. So, it's a difficult passage in many ways. But at the, at the bottom line is we walk a tightrope, don't we, in the church? We, we have to be careful while seeking to maintain orthodoxy and a vibrant faith. We also desire to be relevant to a world that desperately needs to hear the old, old story of Jesus and his love. So we're called. We're called as believers to be guardians of the truth. We're called to be equippers of the truth. And we're to be good listeners as we filter what is true. That is what the church is called to do. And in that process, don't forget verse 9 of chapter 2, where Peter states, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from times of trial. God will preserve his people, and we are called to be faithful. Father, this was a a loaded text. Much here to, to put our hands around as we look at these false teachers. Lord, we live in a day and age where, once again, that which is Doctrine, that which is conceived as dogma, is, is passe. A, a world that uh, is tempting the church big C to strip certain teachings that are embarrassing or just don't fit. Father, we are called to be faithful to the word, and may we be as such. Guard our hearts. Lord, continue to put a hedge of protection around CBF. Thank you for our elders and other leaders that you have given within this body. Lord, protect us on many fronts, on false teaching, but also in our behavior and our walk with you. Lord, thank you that in the process you promised to be with those that are faithful, like you were with Noah, like you were with Lot, and like you were with the Israelites when they encountered Balaam. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.